0: wednesday's program april 21st how you doing hope you've had a good wednesday i've got a terrific program lined up for you over the course of the next two hours let's do it then
1: it's the bbg not the bbc you're listening to the richie allen radio show live from salford in greater manchester
2: it's the richie allen show Broadcasting live on RichieAllen.co.uk And multiple platforms around the world And now, here's your host, Richie Allen Now,
0: an extraordinary thing happened in Canada last Friday A man was sent to prison, contempt of court, for speaking out against the medical transition of his 14-year-old daughter This is true, I read this on RT.com Uh, The story has been covered by Debbie Hayton You probably know Debbie Debbie is a high school teacher and trade union officer And she's a journalist She's a transgender person She writes extensively about what it means to be trans And how trans people can be included in society Without compromising the rights of others Looking forward to meeting Debbie this hour And later on in the programme Professor Dolores Cahill, who needs very little introduction Will be on with me for an extended conversation I can't wait for that as usual, if you'd like to contribute yourself, you can do so by tweeting BBG Richie. BBG Richie is the Twitter handle. Yes. Uh, looking forward to meeting Debbie, who's been uh, writing about these issues and is well known to some of the people who've been on this programme in the past. So there. Yeah, I got my letter today. I was wondering when I'd get the bloody thing. My letter. Inviting me to come for a vaccine. And a little booklet. I wrote about this on uk, So I won't dwell on it, really. We've sent you this letter, Richard. Richard. As people in your age group are now able to get the vaccine. The letter shows you how you can book your appointments through a centre, a vaccination centre or community pharmacy. It's got QR codes and barcodes and everything. And a little booklet. Apparently this is first contact. Should I ignore it, which of course I will... I can expect further letters, and later on, text messages and phone calls. I thought I might get a phone call. I was wrong. I'm planning to record any phone call I get, and any discussion that I might have with some of these people. Um, yeah, so obviously I won't be having any vaccine, of course not. One or two of you misread my story and my picture. You, you misread it like I was excited to be getting the vaccine. Is there something wrong with you? Of course I'm not having it. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Tony Blair, then. Tony Blair, warmongering, mass-murdering Tony Blair. Evil on two legs. He's been calling out vaccine hesitancy. He's called it wrong and unjustified. He's been shilling for AstraZeneca all day long on UK media. He's got a think tank, the Institute for Global Change, it's called. And uh, well, he's just pushing and pushing and pushing vaccines is Tony Blair. Now, I'd like you to do an experiment Gonna be like Yuri Geller here. We're gonna I'm gonna be Yuri Geller. We're gonna do an experiment together. We're gonna to bend some spoons. This is what we're gonna bend. Right. Go to GatesFoundation.org. If you're listening on your laptop, you can do that now. If not, do it later. Do it later, I said. If you're not on your laptop, leave your laptop alone. Anyway, if you go to gatesfoundation.org and you click on the menu, and when you click menu, you will see our story right? How we work, but then you will see committed grants. Click on committed grants and then you can use a little search menu and if you use a search menu and put in Tony Blair, you will see that Tony Blair has been receiving tens of millions of pounds, well his foundation has, from Bill Gates. Well, since, well, going back years, Bill Gates was all over Tony Blair. Back in two thousand, two thousand and one, so he's Billy's, one of Billy's boys. This Tony Blair, he wants Boris Johnson to initiate a a publicity drive to convince people that the vaccines are safe. Here's Tony Blair speaking on Sky News this morning with the hapless Stephen Dixon.
2: Widely accepted that the the rollout in the UK has been a huge success so far. Perhaps. It's starting to tail off a little bit as we work towards the younger age groups for the vaccination. Um, but what more needs to be done, in your view? Well, we have done really well with vaccination in this country, and we're in a almost a unique position as, as Britain, having vaccinated large numbers of people with both Pfizer, which is a messenger RNA vaccine, and AstraZeneca, which is an adenovirus vaccine. And therefore, we have the data of both vaccines, how they've worked, how many people after the, each vaccination, how many people have been still diagnosed with COVID, how many people of those been hospitalized, how many of those have died. So we have, I think, that data. And my view is that if we publish that data, obviously you've got to be careful how you publish it. You've got to publish it in a form that, that, that tells people the truth about the vaccines. But if you publish that data, it will have a major impact on restoring the credibility of AstraZeneca worldwide. We don't have a problem with AstraZeneca here, but worldwide countries are either refusing AstraZeneca for certain categories of people, or you even get countries in Africa now refusing the vaccine. This is completely unjustified. I think the full data set will show that AstraZeneca is a highly effective vaccine. It will save huge amounts of lives, hospitalization, and people getting long COVID. So- How does he know any of that? Keep that in mind. How does he know
0: any of that? He doesn't, of
2: course. COVID. So it's really important that we have as a country a huge interest in this. Because even if we get ourselves vaccinated, if the virus is still mutating in different parts of the world, then the risk is there. But you get a mutation comes back into the UK and vaccines may be less effective against it.
0: Yes, it's not just good enough for all of the UK to have the vaccines. Everybody's got to have them because if they don't, mutations can can, can come back into the country and all of that garbage. You did catch that very, very important bit in the middle, didn't you? And my view is that if we publish that data... Lovely. I mean, this, this is pure gold. They don't hide this stuff anymore. So we said, right, we need to convince people that the vaccine is safe and to do that we need to publish the data but he says and
2: my view is that if we publish that data, obviously we've got to be careful how you publish it, you've got to publish it in a form that, that, that tells people the truth <laughs> about
0: the vaccines why would you need to be careful about the way you publish that data or data? Why would you need to be careful about it? This is unbelievable if I'm presenting I'm asking him what do you mean you've got to be careful about it Just just publish the data publish it and let people make if it want, they will. but he says, no we've got to be careful about how we do it, so that people understand that the vaccines are safe. In other words, we've got to spin the data. Now you're wondering, does Stephen Dixon, the hapless present- presenter, does he say, "Well well, excuse me, Mr. Blair, you know as much about Swahili as you do about epidemiology and immunology, right? So why do you know better than those regulators around the world? Who are not too convinced of the safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine? Surely, to God and Sonny Jesus, Stephen Dixon actually asks him this. He does kind of.
2: Well, but how do we get that message across? Because I mean, a, a lot. I, mean, Dem- I think it was Denmark who, who banned it altogether a, a week or so ago. I mean, these are countries with, you know, s- some solid scientific backgrounds. Their scientists are looking at this now. If, if they're saying they're not happy to use it. How do we convince them otherwise? Well, I think you convince them by, as I say, putting out the full data set. So in Israel, for example, with the Pfizer vaccine, you can see a chart that says numbers vaccinated of those who are vaccinated, one dose, two dose, how many got COVID, how many of those were hospitalized, how many died? And the the results are remarkable. Now, I believe we will have exactly the same results for AstraZeneca, indeed buried away in some of the slides of the the MHRA in this country are what people have done as self-reporting after having vaccination. And the figures for AstraZeneca and Pfizer are roughly the same, and they're both dramatically good, by the way. So I think if you put out the full data set, it will have an impact. And yes, it's true that some regulators in countries like Denmark are, are taking this view, Right,
0: they are. They're taking the view that the AstraZeneca jab is dangerous for certain groups. Again, why do you, warmongering madman, who doesn't have any qualifications whatsoever, why do you know more than they do? But they're taking it, frankly, on unjustified and, and an unbalanced view of the material. How do you know they're taking an unjustified and unbalanced view of the material? The presenter is a goon. He's a goon. You might as well have a cardboard cutout in the studio. Interject, man. It's your job to say these are qualified men, Blair. You you, you, you psychopath. How the hell do you know what they know? The answer is you don't. You're shilling for Bill and you're shilling for AstraZeneca,
2: right? And the European Medical Agency, which is the equivalent for Europe of our MHRA, they're not taking the same view. So one other thing that we suggest in this report, we suggest a whole lot of things that the government might do to make the data more accessible for people. But one of the things... If you
0: want to make the data more accessible to people, just publish it. But Blair wants to publish it in a certain way. <laughs> that it convinces people that the
2: colour red is actually the colour blue. The vaccines are dangerous. It's a fact. things we need to do is for the leading countries of the world to put their regulators together, their top scientists together so that they can pronounce on some of these issues. This is the
0: essence of globalisation now. Listen, and I've said this on the programme many, many, many times. It's not good enough for shills like Blair... And Bill Gates, that there are 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 individual regulators in 80 individual countries. That doesn't suit these lunatics. They need decisions to be made by a tiny group of people. So Blair proposes let's get them all together in one room and tell them what they should say.
2: Just in this report, he says a whole lot of things that the government might do to make the data more accessible to people. But one of the things we need to do is for the leading countries of the world to put their regulators together, their yeah. top scientists together, so that they can pronounce on some of these issues and so that you don't get different regulators taking different decisions in different countries. Often, But
0: why not? Why not have different regulators from different countries taking different opinions? Isn't that the essence of science? Isn't, isn't science... It, I always imagined that there could not be consensus in science, that science is never settled. It makes perfect sense to me that across 50 or 60 countries, you will have dissenting opinions on whether something is safe or not. And this is not good enough, you see, for the agenda. We need to get them all in a room together so we can tell them what they should be saying. Blair, uh, this goes on a little bit more, just a little bit.
2: Yeah, so of course, it's, it, any loss of life is
0: terrible and tragic. And y- Yeah, let me just set this up. Dixon asks him, what about the people in the UK Who've had a blood clot, or what about those who have died of a blood clot ha- after having the AstraZeneca jab? That's what Dixon says. He says, "What would you say to those people who say they're concerned about the jab?"
2: Yeah. So of course, it's, it, any loss of life is terrible and tragic, and you know, of course, you know, our sympathy and our hearts go out to the people who have suffered. But the point is, you're much, much more likely to be at risk of COVID than you are of a blood clot. And probably over the next few weeks, we will, we will have a better understanding of those very rare cases of blood clots, how we might prevent them. But the chances of, of, of getting such a clot is about one in 250,000. And you know, if you take, for example, oral contraception, the chances are more like one in 2,000. So if you, if you take a, a proper view of risk, you're much, much more likely to suffer as a result of COVID. Nonsense.
0: That's nonsense. One in 250,000 is not good odds. That isn't good odds at all. I'm not going to take something where there's a one in 250,000 chance that I might drop dead. Why would I need to do that? I'd be crazy to do that. Okay, it isn't the same thing as playing Russian roulette with a six-shooter. Obviously not. But 250,000 is basically two Wembley stadiums. I'm not prepared to take that risk. Why would I? It's insane. The, the worst that COVID could do to somebody, on average, somebody of my build and, and weight and height and age and physical fitness is for me to be
2: mildly ill for a couple of days. Anyway, he goes on, does Blair. Then you are with these very, very small numbers of cases around blood clots. And one of the problems, I mean, we'll publish a paper in the next few weeks, showing how you could vaccinate the world, the whole of the world, this year. And I tell you why I think that's going to be a vital prerequisite.
0: You're not going to have to listen to why he thinks it's a vital prerequisite, but he said that they're going to publish a paper basically laying out how it is possible to vaccinate the entire planet by the end of the year. This is a man who, when he came to power in his first term and a half, had no interest in vaccination, none whatsoever was really only after he left office and his foundation started getting tens of millions of pounds in donations from Kill Bill, that Tony took such an interest in global vaccination programmes. That's Tony Blair today.
2: Listen to this again, because he said it himself. But the chances of, of, of getting such a plot is about one in 250,000.
0: Yeah, one in 250,000. No, thank you. I want to say hi to Nigel. Now, I don't know where Nige is in the world, but he sent me an email this morning to say that there were some very good, uh, there were some very interesting, rather, things going on on BBC Radio Scotland and Kay Adams' mid-morning programme there. Now in a minute we'll hear Kay Adams speaking with Simon Clark. He's a microbiologist at the University of Reading. Okay? Before she spoke to the microbiologist, she was taking calls from listeners on whether wearing masks would become the norm here she is but
1: but let me just take you to a place I don't know uh, two years down the line and, and I hope I'm not wrong in this um, uh, would you be quite comfortable saying right I'm going to get the bus up the road there to the shopping centre better put my mask on you know would you, do you see yourself adopting that as a kind of common practice oh I'm going into the shopping centre it's absolutely mobbed I'm going to pop a mask on
3: I really don't have a problem with
1: that. But I do like the idea, like you were saying, about a polite society, an altruistic society, the gentleman was kind and inferring to that if you're feeling ill, if you have a cold or a flu, out of a politeness, you put a mask on, yeah, yes, yeah. to protect others. I, I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Well, but I mean, just... what a shift. What a shift, Jim. Because if been... we were having this conversation, oh. you know, um, 18 months ago, Would you put a mask on out of courtesy for other people when you're in a crowded uh, situation? People would look at you as if you were start raving bonkers. It's just not what we do. It's never been part of our culture. So in the space of this time, here we are now having a conversation, moving forward, and this is very much what you are saying, Tessa, from what we have learned uh, over this past year, that this is something that we will now consider as a sensible, acceptable measure for us all to adopt. That is one heck of a shift. It really, really is.
0: It is a big old shift, all right. So she moved on then to speak with the university professor, Simon. Let me get this right. Not Simon. What's his name again? What's his name? Simon Clark, that's it. Simon Clark is a microbiologist at the University of Reading, I believe, and he had something very interesting to say about masks.
1: And uh, Simon Clark, Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology at the University of Reading, is with us for just a few minutes. Um, Simon, good morning.
4: Good morning.
1: Good morning. And and thanks for sticking with us. I I know you're in a rush, but but probably quite interesting for you to hear people's views this morning and certainly for those who are very much in favour of continuing uh, some level of of mask wearing. Um, You know, the the thing is, well, the science tells us that this is a good thing to do. So why wouldn't we? Does the science Uh, confirm that?
4: Uh, None that I've seen. I keep hearing (laughs) that uh, that the science shows, the science shows, the science shows. Um, There is no science on this. Um, And even if you ask somebody like Jenny Harris in in England, the deputy chief medical officer, will say that that, that the effect of them is marginal. You know, all these measures that we take, I mean, somebody much cleverer than me came up with an analogy of a piece of Swiss cheese, and it's on the BBC uh, website. All these measures that we have be it masks or vaccines or social distancing or lockdowns, are like a bit of Swiss cheese. They've got holes in them and they're of different thicknesses. And when you layer it all together, you get a pretty good degree of protection. But if you take a relatively thin layer of cheese with lots of holes in it, like masks, then uh, I'm afraid on their own, they're not going to do very much, if anything, at all.
1: But, well, why? Well, two questions. Why is the level of flu at an all time low? Many people are attributing that to mask wearing because, you know, within the general community, we're not getting so close to people and we're, we're restricting our, our breath.
4: Um, and
1: also, well, why have all these Asian countries been doing it forever? Good question. Simon?
4: Uh, because they think it has an effect, but they don't have any evidence for it. Um, no evidence. And, and, you know, as for the flu rate, I think stopping at home and uh, uh, not going to the pub and stuff like that and working from home where you can are probably much bigger factors than wearing a mask. I actually think that if you if you sort of introduce mask wearing routinely, uh, you'll get more people turning up to work with heavy colds. Uh, and maybe even flu, because they think, oh, it's OK, I'll wear a mask.
1: I mean, Well, in certain situations, though, I mean, I'm talking about Asian countries, but, you know, for instance, most medical practitioners, certainly doctors and surgeons will routinely wear masks. Presumably they're doing that because they think it's got a protective um, aspect to it.
4: Well, a surgeon, a surgeon is stood over you while your body is open. And, of course, they can breathe and, uh, and uh, well, spit, for want of a better word, things while they're talking. So, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there is no denying it will put a layer in front of your face. Incidentally, if you leave it there too long and or don't fit it properly or wear it properly, it's pretty useless. I mean, if you leave a, a normal sort of those papery like surgical masks over your face for too long, uh, it's tantamount to having a, nothing more than a dirty hanky strapped across your face.
1: Right. So it doesn't sound as if you'll be one of the people advocating we, you know, routinely wear masks long after the pandemic's behind us. She catches on quickie. Eh?
4: I won't be advocating it. No, not unless I see some absolutely slam dunk data. And I mean real science. We heard earlier that, uh, that uh, the tubes are empty um, and that, that, you know, that was given less significance, tubes being empty in London, than people wearing masks. I just, where that, uh, that reasoning comes from, I just don't know.
1: Mm. Uh, Simon Clark, thank you very much indeed, Associate Professor in Cellular. Mic- she, she
0: she she rings off or she hangs up on him, and then she spends the next couple of minutes saying that well, all the other scientists, they all say that wearing masks is beneficial, even though wearing masks is not beneficial. There's no evidence whatsoever, but it doesn't matter. It's exactly twenty one minutes past five o'clock. This is the Richie Allen Radio Show. It is live as usual from Salford in the northwest of this great. Ireland, it's a great country and I'm glad to be here, glad to be here with you coming up in a moment, Debbie Hayton will be on the programme, can't wait to meet Debbie later on, it is uh, none other than Professor Dolores Cahill uh, to take me to Debbie, and I will be reading your comments as we go along, here's Curtis Mayfield, and move on up Drive time Sonny Salford, the super sound of the Richie Allen Radio Show keep those tweets coming in, BBG Richie Wednesday's programme. Hush not, Curtis Mayfield, and move on up your Richie Allen radio show. It is Wednesday's programme. Dolores Cahill coming up a bit later on. I will read your tweets. I did say this already, but I will read them out as we go along. And uh, just to let you know, next week uh, we will do a phone in, uh, at least one. Uh, so keep that in mind as well. The memes for such things, with all the details, are on Facebook and on 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 Twitter as well, these memes. Right, so I, I want to introduce uh, my first guest by reading a little bit of an article that she wrote for RT.com. Uh, the headline is, Father jailed for calling his transgender child, who was born female, his daughter, and denouncing her medical treatment. This is by Debbie Hayton now. Uh, Canada, true north, strong and free, according to its anthem, is enthralled to transgender ideology. On Friday, a father was sent to prison, his crime speaking out against the medical transition of his 14-year-old daughter. The man complained about doctors giving puberty blockers to the 14-year-old and referred to the child with the pronouns she and her in defiance of a court order. He was sent to prison for six months for contempt of court. Delighted to welcome to the programme. I'm sure you've come across her before. Uh, Debbie is a high school teacher, a secondary school teacher, we should say, and trade union officer, uh, a journalist as well. And as a transgender person, she's written a lot about what it means to be trans and how trans people can be included in society without compromising the rights of other uh, vulnerable groups. Debbie, thank you so much for your time today. How are you?
3: You're very welcome. I'm fine. Thanks, Richie. Yeah.
0: I imagine you're crazy busy. Are you doing Zoom lessons and all of that jazz, Debbie? How's it going for you?
3: Uh, we've tried to move beyond that. Uh, we've had the children back in school since since the beginning of March. It's oh, been thank much God. Better. And, and, and that's working out. Yeah, nice to see them in three dimensions rather than two. <laughs> I can only imagine.
0: I imagine they're thrilled about it as well. Debbie, this is, I've, I've, I came across this this morning and I had to read it twice, I couldn't believe it. Um, tell, give, give our listeners the gist of the story and is the man in prison now? Has he been bailed, pending an appeal? What's happened?
3: No, he's in prison. He he had been uh, he'd been remanded ahead of the uh, ahead of the he- of the hearing, uh, so he's in prison. He was sentenced for six months.
0: And he was taken down immediately and transferred to a jail.
3: Yeah, well, he was he was being held on remand, quite remarkably for a contempt of court. So he'd been held on remand, was brought from jail. So he his sentenced in hearing. Uh, he was in jail garb. He was he'd been brought from jail and then led back to jail afterwards. Debbie, I'll give myself a slap in the face because you did
0: make that uh, point clear. My apologies. I'm I'm amazed. Go back to the beginning for us. Then where where did this begin uh, for this man and his family?
3: It began oh, 2017. So it, it's four years old. Is this? It's a long, honoring case. Uh, the man's daughter was 11 years old, starting secondary school in Canada nobody thought any anything of it but uh, through one thing or the other the the uh, child identified as transgender uh the first thing the father knew about it was when he found the uh child's name was the child was referred to by a male name in the yearbook the end of end of year yearbook that was the first he knew about it and that had been going on at school uh th- clearly it was it was a difficult situation for the family uh And I've heard that the the family are broken up and the parents have shared uh, custody with the the daughter. Now, the daughter had identified as trans. Uh, The school counsellor, I understand, uh, referred her to uh, a psychologist. And uh, the psychologist he was referred to is uh, is uh, a man called Wallace Wong, who practices in British Columbia, and he's something of an evangelist for transgender children, and uh, he's on record of saying that he's he's helped thousands of, you know helped a thousand tran- children transition he's written a picture book for four to eight year olds on what, what gender means uh, he's clearly got a mission and he then referred the child on to the uh, bc uh, british columbia children's hospital and uh, the child after one after appointments with a with an endocrinologist signed a uh, she signed a, a consent form consenting not just to the puberty blockers, which we've been discussing in the UK, uh, but also cross sex hormones, testosterone. And she consented to all this, signing away, uh, a, you know, signing. It, the consent form looks like one of those car rental agreements you get. You know, when you sign, you you sign all sorts of things away. Uh, but as part of this, she said that she would understand that this may affect long, ter- you know, long-term health. It may affect her ability to get pregnant. Uh, the long-term effects of testosterone were unknown, and she signed this when she was 13. When she
0: was 13, and yeah. dad, dad presumably Debbie was apoplectic about this.
3: Uh, dad tried to stop it. Yeah. But he was told that uh, although, and this, this needs to be read, this this was the letter from the children's hospital that he shared. It's it, The letter from the hospital said, although parents can be friends and advisers, they have no veto over the treatment. No veto over the treatment of a child?
0: Yeah. Of a child. So the course... And she was
3: 14 when this treatment started.
0: 14. So when, so dad's only only avenue then to try and prevent this was to go to court, and the court sided with the child and the child's mother
3: uh the ch- the uh yes i need need to make clear there that the parents are separated and the, the mother apparently supports the transition so there's there there is uh the, the, you know the, the, there's clearly tensions there but uh the father uh the father was in a bind he got into trouble in a previous hearing for referring to the child as his daughter. Yeah. Uh, because that was upsetting for the child, uh, he was told he was he had no say in the treatment. He had he had nothing to uh, he, he had no right to veto this treatment. He felt that his only uh, his only recourse of action was going to the press. So he what you've heard and what I, you know the documents I shared you didn't believe on first uh, on on first reading, and he shared it with the press. And it was that that's got him into trouble. There was a, there was a court order protecting his child, his daughter's identity. And uh, he shared the documents which, which didn't name her. Now, the documents which I, I was using have had all the names redacted. What he actually did was and what what actually led to the uh, custodial sentence was him sharing those documents. That's That's what upset the judge. You know, court uh, yeah. I, I would just say the man was—you know—the man was in such a dreadful position. What do you do? It's a situation I can't even
0: imagine, and he's in prison now for contempt of court. I'm so glad to have you on, Debbie. It's been a while since we covered this, and um, as a—you know—as a—as a middle-aged baldy. Bloke. I know very little about this issue, but I'm fascinated by it. Tell us why you and others like you, because I've interviewed some of your colleagues, some of the people that you've worked with in the past. Why is there such a big concern? about puberty blockers for kids. I know you've touched on it a moment ago and you touched on the dangers of the testosterone, but what are the fears, the medical fears, the consequences that you know people might face later in life if they're given these puberty blockers? Why is puberty so important, Debbie?
3: Well, we all go through puberty. It's the bridge between childhood and, and, and adulthood. The danger is it's it's sold or has been sold as a pause button. So children who are 11, 12 years old entering puberty can pause their natural puberty while they come to a decision. But there's two huge problems with that. One, in history, people, children have been, have reported suffering gen, from gender dysphoria for yeah, you know, for generations, middle age, and especially girls, middle-aged uh, female friends of mine report uh, having suffered it themselves. But the evidence suggests that in in eighty percent to ninety percent of cases, it resolves itself during adolescence. So puberty is actually the cure for this in most cases. By putting children on puberty blockers, it's it's not. They they don't make any progress with their puberty, and all their friends start going through puberty. They they get left behind, and the pressure on them to take cross sex hormones is huge. Uh, the study by the studies have shown that uh, children who have started puberty blockers almost inevitably go on to cross sex hormones. So from a situation where ten to twenty percent of children uh, medically transition. Uh, we're at virtually a hundred percent, and the decision's being sold as a pause button or a delay, but effectively it is the decision over what to, over what to do. Now, then you say, well, the child goes through the other pu- through the other puberty. They don't really. Uh, we don't change our sex. Medical transition doesn't change anybody's sex. It didn't change mine and it doesn't change these children's. It just leaves you with a body more typical of the opposite sex. But a child who has gone through, has as taken puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones before before puberty, will inevitably be infertile uh, and they will lose their, in, their, their, any opportunity they would have to have their own children, they would lose and i did transition later i'm speaking as somebody who transitioned but i transitioned in adulthood uh, after i'd had my own children and this is important what we're saying to children is you can choose which puberty to go through which is a lie they can't uh what was uh what we're saying to them is you need you need to make a decision now about your entire future life your ability to have children uh it's going to affect your relationships Uh, with other people, but it is an issue that could resolve itself if you leave it if you let it resolve itself but we're asking them to make these decisions before they know what it means to be an adult and uh, as the high court of england and wales has said children who are aged 13 or under are in no position to make those uh, make those judgments and by going on to purity blocks it does start that process the courts in england and wales have realized that but unfortunately the courts in british columbia just seem to be uh, seem to be on a different planet, different planet, on a different continent. Debbie, do
0: you worry, do you leave any room for doubt? Do you worry that you might be wrong? Because certain trans rights groups, whom I've tried to get on this programme, with the absolute promise that I'll be the gentleman that I always am when I speak to anybody, that i listen to them, I said, come on and talk to me, but they won't come on and talk to me because they think I've made my mind up when I haven't. I'll put their point of view. Their point of view is that by not helping these children, that um, as they say... Um, you know, born in the wrong body—that—that that, you know, were born as male but but are really female. By not helping them and by not intervening, that in itself could lead to these medical and 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 even psychologically medical problems later on in life. They say that they have the evidence to support that, and for the rest of us,
3: it's kind of hard to know what to believe. There is a huge psychological. Pro- there is huge problems with children. Psych- children suffering huge pressures mental health strain but it's much much bigger now it is so much huge now that my opponents the trans rights campaigners that you talk about will say it's just because people now are uh, able to talk about it but what's what what caused the issues for me because i i went through the same thing as these children going through in childhood was the promise that you could. Uh, it was it was the promise and availability of treatment which which uh, provoked the demand for it in me. I needed that treatment because it was available. When it wasn't available, I got I got on with life. And uh, yes, I uh, I did struggle with gender to use the jargon from a very early age. But I managed. I cooked And I I I grew up. And eventually, I did transition as an adult to go to children and have to make those decisions when quite frankly, it's the availability of the treatment, which in my experience uh, provoked the demand for it, then we're saying to children, we're not responding to children, we're directing children, we're saying, here's some treatment that uh, you might want, that uh, here is some treatment rather than necessarily uh, responding to what the children are actually telling us. I do worry, I do worry that children are being led in this by adult campaigners. Uh, uh, for, for a number of reasons. And if we just left the children in peace uh, to grow up, then they would have fewer issues. It's become toxic, hasn't it? Uh, there's
0: obviously been some very high profile cases, obviously J.K. Rowling, obviously the writer, Graham, Graham Linehan and others. And I've looked at them and, and I and, and I'm supposed to be neutral, of course, but I've got to be honest, I didn't see anything hateful or or prejudicial in anything said by J.K. Rowling or or Graham Linhun or others, and yet the consequences for offering an opinion on this they they can be severe. I suppose you've had it, Debbie. Uh,
3: people write to my employer. People tweet my people tweeted my employer last week saying that uh, you know have you you know do you know you're employing a a, a despicable transphobe? They do it regularly, uh, so this this is normal now. I, I am I'm a trans person who is campaigning on a basis of science. I think that every one of us should be able to express ourselves in ways which are more typical of the opposite sex. And that's what I do. If uh, medical treatment helps you do that, then I think that should be available to adults. There's a number of things that should be available to adults that aren't available to children. This is one of them. Uh, but... To say that I'm transphobic, I think he's just a wild misrepresentation of what I'm saying. You mentioned Graham Linehan and J.K. Rowling. Nothing I have seen those people say is remotely transphobic. No. But the problem is uh, they've been smeared by slurs. So people have said J.K. Rowling is transphobic and people agree with it. And before you know it, people are saying that uh, uh, these people are transphobic. But my challenge is always... Who told you that J.K. Rowling was transphobic, and why did you believe them? Because people need to think critically about this. It's not good enough just to follow the crowd on this and say everybody else thinks that Gremlin and J.K. Rowling and are transphobic because they're not. You have to do your own.
0: I, I, I won't. I won't use that horrible cliche. Do your own research. But you've got to read for yourself and and think for yourself. Let me let me ask you this: a lot of concern about introducing not the idea of of transgender people, but but introducing the notion of gender and the possibility of multiple genders to to children in in primary school. I'm 46, Debbie. I went through primary school. It was a lovely experience, as I remember it, you know, in in St Saviour's in Waterford City in in, in Ireland. We we, we learned the Irish language. We learned how to read and write English and to do basic mathematics. And we had a great time. We spent a lot of time outdoors. I'm stunned now to learn that children are being asked to consider issues that, you know, I don't care how bright they are, they're not emotionally developed enough to cope with discussing gender and these issues. Where's that coming from and how concerning is that?
3: I just worry that we've regressed here. Uh, my parent, In my parents' generation, uh, boys were told bo- there was boys' things and girls' things. Boys were expected to play rough and tumble or climb trees. Girls were expected to sit quietly and... Uh, uh in the corner at times now i grew i'm slightly older than you but i remember when i was growing there was a big pushback against this. we said that children could children could be children we encouraged girls to girls to climb trees uh boys you know boys were said it was fine to sit and read books and devour books in the library uh we we see, we seem to be getting there we've now we've gone backwards uh we're now at a position where we're not saying to we're saying to uh Girls who uh, ex- exhibit more masculine traits—we're not saying to them, it's really good that girls can be uh, more masculine in their outlook. Or boys can be more feminine. What we're saying to children is, oh, you're a—you know—you're a—you're—you're you're a child who exhibits uh, masculine, uh, you know, uh, qualities. Perhaps you're really a boy. Have you thought of? Yeah. About that. What we should be saying to children is it's really good that girls and boys can be who they are. Debbie, can I jump in? Sorry. Can, them into these boxes. can I jump yeah. in? A
0: thousand apologies for interrupting you there. Can I jump in? Are you sure that this is really going on? So I remember there was a couple of tomboys in my class a girl called Claire, a girl called Neve. And as far as I know, Claire and Neve are happily married now to, to men and they have children, but they were proper tomboys. Are, are you saying that you believe or that you know? that these days the tomboy might be, there might be an intervention that somebody might actually take the tomboy to one side and say, do you know what? You might actually be a
3: boy. Is that really going on? I worry. I, I've seen uh, BBC uh, programmes where this has been discussed about these genders, what you're, what you're talking, what you've talked about, how many genders there are. Uh this this is constraining people into boxes. I've seen I, I've seen slides of training conducted by Mermaids UK, which is a campaigning organisation which is which which is, which takes very strong views on uh, the transition of children, which links uh, gender expression to this co- concept they call gender identity. It's the uh, G I Joe and Barbie chart, and it's a horrible amalgam of sexist stereotypes, applying it to saying, where do you fit on the spectrum? This is the message that children are getting. They're getting this message. And to attempt to discuss this, you
0: know, it, it, and I've, I've looked at you, Debbie, I mean, I've, I've heard of you, again, because I, I do keep an eye on this, and a very good friend of mine, Hayden Hewitt from LiveLeak.com, he's very interested in this issue as a as a dad of a young boy who's going to primary school, and uh, he's looking at it as well. Um to, to try and talk about this, there there, there there don't appear to be any avenues where you can get this discussed rationally and academically in a public forum. That's the thing that worries me. Any attempt to question any of it seems to result in, at the very least, um, trolling of you or anybody else on social media. But at worst, I mean, you've said yourself, people contacting your employer to say that you're a hateful person and that maybe you should be fired and that concerns me. So, you know, if, if things continue the way they're going, this will just roll on and there won't be any proper discussion of it. That's obviously concerning you.
3: It does. We should we should be able to discuss these issues. But what the problem is that the the issue has been framed in terms not of activities and actions, but in identity. We should be talking about. The rights of people to do things the rights of children to express their gender but it's become so much based in identity the identities of people so we're told you can't debate this because you're uh, debating my identity and no we're not we're debating the way that human beings can interact with each other which is not our identities at all nobody's debating identity but this is what we get told Uh, our identity is not up for debate uh, I've no interest. I- I've no interest in debating anybody's identity. I want to debate how, as individuals, we get together in society and how we relate to each other. That's what I want to discuss. And uh, and. it's misunderstood misunderstood quite deliberately, I suspect. And I suspect it comes down to the fact that uh, I'm happy to to, uh, say what I think, make my case based upon upon, uh, arguments, which I give based upon situations, and people on the other side of the debate, which they don't want to have, I I, I wonder if they're they're less able to uh, debate. Uh, a filmmaker I once spoke with, a filmmaker and journalist, once made a very pertinent point on this. He said transgender activists were the only group that he knew about who were never willing, who were not willing to speak to him as a journalist. He'd, spoke, he'd, he'd done some work on the uh, on the problems in the Middle East. He'd spoken to these. Israeli defence forces and he's spoken to Hamas and he spoke to both cases. He says, everybody's usually happy to speak to me because they want to present their arguments. Uh, but the transgender people just wouldn't talk to me. And what he suggested was the only reason why people are unwilling to speak to a journalist is because they don't, uh, deep down, they don't actually believe the arguments which they're actually trying to, uh, trying to propagate. They don't
0: have confidence in those arguments. I mean, I, I, I worked for many years for a gay man and um, we were close and we, we used to go out occasionally to the only gay bar, would you believe, at the time in Waterford. So I met people, I met gay and lesbian men and women, and I met one or two, not too many now, I met one or two trans people. And everything was fine. Um, I, I, I genuinely, um, I don't care what, you know, how how somebody looks. I, I don't care what their sexual orientation is. I, o- I only care, Debbie, whether they can get their round in and whether they're interested. And that's the truth. So, so that was my k- kind of only exposure to it. I suppose lately the thing that's worried me or annoyed me is the suggestion that it's not good enough for me, the radio presenter, to mind my own business. I mean, this is a very new paradigm. You know, I should be able to mind my own business. If I meet you out, Debbie, I say hello to you. Um, It's none of my business. um. um First of all, what has happened to you in the past, what you do for a living, who you are. It's none of my bloody business. We can have a drink. And that's how I've always lived my life. But increasingly, as time goes on, particularly with some trans activists, that's not good enough. They seem to want people like me and everybody else to affirm them and to acknowledge them and to to say, yes, I go along with how you see you. And, And I think that's very scary, that it shouldn't be like that
3: yeah it's its almost seems to me that people try to get their uh to uh look for the affirmation of others to build their lives on the affirmation of others yeah they don't need you just to to say it they need you to think it and they need to convince themselves that you're really thinking it's not just saying that you're thinking it it's nowhere to live you know my own particular philosophy about being trans is i i'm a male i'm a male person i i, I mean no doubt about that i was a father of three kids so I, you know it, it's you know the evidence is out there uh but i'm a male person who prefers to present to the world in a, in a way which is more typical of females and that that's that's me and if somebody says i don't believe you then i say well the evidence of your eyes uh so that's where i'm coming from so i'm not if if what other people think doesn't bother me but if i'm if i'm trying to tell them i'm really a female person i just happen to be born in the wrong body then i've no evidence for that it's just an it's just an assertion that i'm making and if somebody comes back and says well i don't believe you then what do I have? So, uh, uh, you know, I I sometimes have talked to uh, people who who think differently to me. Sometimes they do talk to me. And I'll say, well, we've got two two different ways of looking at what it means to be trans here. I think I'm male, but I just happen to present in a way more typically female. You think you're really female. But what seems to me is my philosophy allows me to live with Security, confidence, and contentment—that yours doesn't seem to, because you just seem to be—you just seem to become upset the moment anybody doesn't believe you. It's—I just don't—I don't think it's anywhere to live. No, I look no at no way to think, live. Well, I prefer my my lookout.
0: Can I ask you two questions before we yeah, go? Sure. Uh, thanks for coming on, boy. I've enjoyed chatting with you, Debbie. A couple of questions. The first one is because um, about nine, ten years ago, I believe that you transitioned you must have faced some societal prejudice because I know even though they won't come on, they do email me. They will be listening, by they now, of course, I mean certain uh, trans rights people will listen to this and will email me later on and say that I gave you an easy ride and will say blah, blah, blah. And of course, I will email back and say, well, you could have come on. We could have had a chat <laughs> if you'd come on, <laughs> you see, yeah. ra- rather than criticise my inability to interview Debbie. Um, but they will say, Richie, look, prejudice against trans people and genuine malevolence towards us is a genuine thing. Have you experienced it, Debbie? Have you come up against any of that societally?
3: There are a few bigots out there. There are a few horrid people out there who dislike anybody who is different to them. Uh, if they if they, if they uh, see me walking down the street, uh, they clock me as trans. They will abuse me for being trans. The next person who walks down the street uh, might be black. They'll abuse them for being black. They'll shout. They'll shout abuse at women. Uh, There are those people around and they will abuse trans people like they'll abuse any group. I don't believe, and my experience is, is that there is no special level of abuse for trans people. We're not particularly oppressed. We're not particularly marginalised. In some way, society has been bending over backwards. Uh, They people 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 do I, I do sometimes suffer abuse not often but i do suffer it more often i get uh i have to deal with people who are dancing on eggshells around me through fear of saying the wrong thing of, uh, of upsetting <laughs> yeah. me I, I don't want that you know yeah. i didn't transition to be uh, wrapped in cotton wool i just transitioned in order that i could carry on my life teaching representing my colleagues in the workplace and uh you know i'm getting on with life uh i don't want people to just stand on eggshells around me Brilliant. and uh
0: yeah and just before i ask you about because if i don't ask you about whether this movement is a genuine threat to women as feminists believe. I want to ask you about that and I'll give you time to answer that. I've got to ask you, you teach um, secondary school children physics. I like you, Debbie, but I wouldn't like you to teach me. I I spent a year at (laughs) physics. I had to drop it to do something else. I was so uh, abysmal at it. But uh, how are the youngsters with you? Uh, They're
3: they're they're, they're far more interested in how I can teach physics than... uh, than, 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 my, than my history. Good it's it's not important. It, it really isn't important. In school, men are, male teachers and female teachers do pretty much the same job when they're teaching their subjects. So my right. transition there didn't really have an impact at all on the way I teach. It must have taken some courage, it's Debbie. An, it's not been an issue for children. Well, that's at a
0: at wonderful all. thing and I mean it when I say it must have taken some courage. Final question, and you can take as much time as you want to answer it. Um, I'll be moving on at about six o'clock, but we obviously hear from women. We we saw the cases of uh, trans women, male to female, ending up in, in women's prisons and terrible things happening there. And I hear from women fairly regularly who say that this movement is problematic for women and puts women in danger. What do you say about that?
3: Well, it does. Uh, you know, sadly, uh, you know, our sex, the male sex, uh, tends to, and I'm not saying uh, I can get into the not all men are like that argument, but uh, there is a there is a proportion of men who will abuse women, and women don't women can't pick out the good ones. That's what they tell us. They'll say that uh, some men are abusive of, of women, as some men will take advantage of women, you know, and and women will say we can't we can't tell we can't tell. good ones so that's why we have to say no to all of you from our spaces so women will want to have spaces now some may be changing rooms for example physical spaces others may just be spaces where they want to discuss issues that pertain to being female and they want to do that in the with the exclusion of males And they have every right to do that. Now, what's been happening with this ideology is we've moved away from sex being defined as our biology to sex being uh, defined as who we want, you know, being defined in terms of our thoughts and feelings about ourselves. So those boundaries that women have been able to put up, say, look, this space, this discussion group uh, is just for females. Uh, we're quite happy to include males later in this other time, no problem. But we just here we want an all-female group. By moving away from biological sex as the uh, as the distinction between men and women, with this concept called gender identity, which has been which has been invented in recent years, women have lost that right to do that, and that's that's that harms women. Uh, in some cases, I've talked about discussion groups, for example. But you mentioned prisons. And in both England and in, and in Ireland, uh, male people have been housed in female prisons with disastrous consequences. And uh, it's no good there to say, well, you know, uh, some this this is only uh, the bad trans trans people. Some trans women are good trans women. If uh, if all men were absolutely decent above board and never you know never abused women, never took advantage of women, then we wouldn't need segregation in the, the amount of segregation in societies we do. You know, you know the prisoner state could be mixed, I guess. But we know we know what a disaster that that would be because we know the truth of humanity. You know what it means to be male and female in humanity, and and some men would take advantage. And by allowing men to self identify as trans women and I agree with that I think we should I have no any man who, who decides that they want to define themselves as a trans woman I'm happy with that but what it means is is that if a barrier has to be uh, drawn somewhere you can't do it in terms of, me, of men deciding that I want to be a, a woman here uh, the barrier still has to come down terms between male sex and female sex but we've blurred a lot of those boundaries and we keep, and we do hear from women concerned about that, and I hear their concerns. The other way around, it doesn't work out the same way, does it not? Uh, men have all, all men groups as well, but men tend to be better at defending those, and uh, because it's the dynamic between the sexes. Uh, women are vulnerable women are in a in often in a weaker position and by uh, blurring the meaning of what it means to be female as we've done certainly blurring the meaning of what it does to be women it weakens those boundaries which women have uh, have have set up Uh, they can you know it's no point the male to lock the door on men if men can cut their own key and let themselves in Debbie, I
0: really enjoyed meeting you. Thanks for coming on. Folks, go to Debbie's website. It's Debbie Hayton. That's H-A-Y-T-O-N, DebbieHayton.com. It's at Debbie Hayton on Twitter as well. Follow her there. And pinned to the top of Debbie's Twitter account is an account of her own transition back in 2012, which I read today, hoodmagazine.co.uk. It's really worth a read. Debbie, stay in touch and thanks so much for your time today. Yeah.
3: Okay. Thanks very much.
0: R- really enjoyed bye. it. Bye <laughs> for now. Okay, bye. Uh, so that was uh, Debbie Hayton. Then Debbie's a physics teacher, trade unionist, and journalist, and wrote, wrote even on RT.com overnight about that story in Canada where that father who wanted to prevent his young daughter being given puberty blockers and cross uh, hormone medication ended up going to prison for six months for contempt of court because he continued to refer to his daughter. Who uh, identifies as male? He, he he continued to identify her as, uh, c- continued to refer to her as she and her, and that was uh, enough to annoy a judge to send him to prison for six months for contempt of court. That story can be read on rt.com. The time is two and a half minutes to six o'clock. you with the Richie Allen Radio Show, which as usual is broadcasting live from Richie Allen Radio Show Towers. That's right. Yes, in the heart of Salford. Yeah, Sonny Salford. If you believe any of that, I'll tell you another one. Uh, got me a letter today for me vaccination. Yeah, and uh, uh, I, I won't be going, obviously, but I can expect another one or two, you're telling me. And I can expect a couple of phone calls. And I might even receive a visit from a persuader. <laughs> yeah, a persuader. and Persuaders, apparently, are people who work for councils. And they go knocking on the doors of people who don't take the jab. And they knock on the door and you open the door and they say "How are you?" and you say "How are you?" What do you want? You say and they say we're here to persuade you to have the vaccine. <laughs> so I don't know if it's uh, yeah I don't know. Get some, get some, get some. What did she use years ago? What did she use years ago? Cooking. Get some cooking. Now cooking is a square block of animal fat. Get some cooking and get a little gas burner and get a little saucepan and put some cooking. Uh, burning or or melting on on, on the pan right by the door. No, don't do any of that. We don't tolerate violence on this programme under any circumstances, so we don't. Professor Dolores Cahill will join me right soon. I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to Dolores. It's been a few months since she was on the programme. Hi to Mowinga. How you doing, Mowinga? Thank you very much. Hi to Chris Morrell. Follow what people are telling me by inserting BBG Richie without any without any spaces, on Twitter. Press enter, you'll see what people are tweeting to me. And a lot of tweets today, because today I began to post articles on my website again, which I wasn't doing when I was on holiday, and which I didn't do on Monday or on Tuesday, because I had so much correspondence to catch up with. But if you go to richieallen.co.uk, bookmark the website, keep it handy, because I will be uploading pretty much every day, or at least every other day, but every day, articles that you might find interesting or you might find incredibly tedious. It doesn't matter. Because you can leave your own comments and your own opinions and all the rest of it there as well. Aztec as camera then! Yes, art house shit. Jimmy Rabbit said. Jimmy Rabbit said house shit in The Commitments. So- radio show. The time is exactly four minutes past six o'clock. It's Wednesday, of course, the 21st. ...of April 2021. And I'm really fond of my next guest. I think she's an extraordinarily gifted woman. A brilliant scientist, obviously. And her resume, her CV, as we say, back home in Ireland, is is uh, is is exceptional and it speaks for itself. And I have to say on a personal level, it's a dreadful thing for me. As somebody who, I suppose, learned his trade in Ireland, who learned from some... I think I learned something from uh, some brilliant producers and journalists in terms of how to conduct yourself and how to treat people, you know, and fairness and balance. It's distressing to me to see how this obviously brilliantly bright and qualified woman has been treated by the Irish media because she's dared to ask some very important questions of the Irish government and its response to uh, coronavirus. I've not known um, anybody to be as denigrated to be as denounced, to be to be as trolled, as uh, as this lady. Let's welcome her back to the program. We're having a momentary, a momentary problem with connection there, but I think we might have her now. It's a big welcome back to the program. Hello, Richie. Can uh, you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Thank God for that. I thought there might have been an issue there while I was introducing you. Um, I've never been a sycophant. Never. Whatever else I might be, I I think you're fantastic. And and it kills <laughs> it, it it kills me, Dolores, as as somebody who was taught to present and produce radio programs and do it properly, uh, to be fair, yeah. to be fair, and to keep your own opinion out of it, and to make sure that every side is heard. I never thought I'd see the day when the Irish media would go after a brilliant woman, an academically brilliant woman who has never harmed a hair on anybody's head, who has just Aww. given an honest opinion. I've never seen anything like it. And I'm sorry about it. It's disgusting. But anyway, I wanted to get that off my chest. Well,
5: listen, Richie, just so you know, but first of all, I'm very grateful to everyone who's, you know, sends me good wishes uh, that I was never on social media before this. And I don't really pay too much attention to what they say. And I just plow on.
0: You carry on regardless. You've, yes, you've developed yes, a thick don't... skin.
5: Exactly. And I, I suppose I... I've yeah, In my job and been undermined in my job and put pressure on for at least
0: now We're having a problem with the old connection there. It's not great, so what I'm going to do I obviously have a mobile number for Dolores, so I'll take a quick tune if I've got one handy and I never do have one handy uh, Listen, I played this yesterday, but Sherlock, you'll look, you'll have to forgive me for that uh, We'll probably have to do it on the old mobile, so while uh, I get her back, this is something I played yesterday, apologies when was I ever professional, eh? Right, we'll chance the Skype again. Dolores, sorry about that. You dropped out on, on us, or, or I dropped out on you, but, but I think you're back now. Let's hope you are. Are you there? No. No. She's mobile, you see. Uh, she's using the old Skype on on the old mobile phone and she's outdoors, so this is not going to work this way. So there's only one way to do it now, and that's to do it the old school way, and Check out the old dog and bone, as it were. Professor Dolores Carl, Wednesday's Richie Allen program. It's all systems go. Let's see, can we get her on the old mobile? By the way, do drop me a tweet. Uh, there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm listen, back on again. not to worry. We're on. We're on the mobile. This should be. This should. The, the signal should be fine uh, for now. Sorry about the messing around. Um, you were saying b- before we got cut off. You've you've developed a thick skin. In, you know, in light of everything that's been going on for you in the last 12 months. And, you know, a lot has happened since we last spoke with the university. And, um, you know, a lot of people are pulling for you out there and uh, wanted me to mention that when, when, when we got started today. And you said yourself, you're getting a lot of messages from people, um, you know, wishing you the best and, and, and pulling for you. But um, you're not on social media, you said, so you don't care one way or the other.
5: Well, I wasn't on social media before 2019, 2020, we'll say, when I decided um, I do have people helping me. So I'm not really doing it myself, but I have a Facebook page, Dolores Cahill, and I have com, And I'm on Telegram at Dolores Cahill. But But actually, it'll come out. I'm not really able to talk about it, but I am, you know, I'm under significant... Um there's a lot of undermining going on of me, including in my professional life, which I can't talk about. Um, but I will be able to talk about it in some months, we'll say it will become more evident to people. And I think if, um, you know, things around m- my privacy, we'll say, or confidentiality um, and, you know, in my professional roles, that if people can do things like they're doing to me, Uh, And I do have a voice still. Um, It must be, you know, it's kind of for me uncovering what they must be doing to other people, including people who are raising issues and would not be well known and would not have a voice.
0: It's affirmation and confirmation that you're on the right track, no doubt, but it can't be easy either. And I'm guessing you're hinting at possible tribunals further down the road. and, uh, And I totally understand why you couldn't get into any of that. But um, talk yeah. to us about But on the,
5: on the other hand, though, I did put in last week to retire. So I will be retired by the end of June 2021. And so, uh, whether I wanted to or not, let's say. Um, and so, even though I won't have any income, I'll be able to spend more time and I'll have to reignite my entrepreneurial skills or whatever. Um, but at least from July 2021, I will have uh, more time. And also, I'll be more free as well, you know?
0: You'll be freed up to do things. Uh, maybe, exactly. maybe things that you might think are more important now, going, uh, going forward, folks. Go to Dolores' website, dolorescahill.com. dot com. Check out worldfreedomalliance.org. dot org. What's happening with World Freedom Alliance? I I rang you yesterday morning, and it was bedlam. You are up to your eyes in meetings. It all sounds very positive. What news can you bring us? Uh, you know what's been what, what what's been happening since we last spoke in January.
5: Wow, it seems like such a long time ago. So maybe just for people to look up, they have org. So we have more than 100 countries now that are engaged with us. And over the next months or years, we want to have uh, either members or uh, world, you know, country committees and coordination committees in every country. And really the vision that I have with uh, Manika Helleberg and the board of the World Freedom Alliance includes Dr. Heiko Schoening uh, in Germany, Kavik in Denmark, Is that we are um, see that I see that as the alternative United Nations, so very much a small administration and representing people all around the world. But what we're doing, so we have over 100 countries. um, On the 15th of May in the World Freedom Alliance, we want to have peaceful rallies um, in every country in the world, Um, and we see it as the you know a new an alternative to the United Nations. And where we can exchange information. So, say if you know one country in the Gambia or Tanzania, um, or in Brazil, has got a solution to a particular problem, or if there's a technology and alternative media and alternative phone that we can actually exchange the information very quickly. So we have pillars for education, for science and doctors, you know, and for innovation, banking, and for political parties, um, and how to communicate. We'll say. Uh, and to organize for people who want to peacefully protest. So it's actually growing really well. And even though everyone is doing it voluntarily and not paid, uh, we are getting more structured to the organization. And we also want to highlight initiatives, we we'll say, which is alternatives to the uh, global banking, or there's a new phone called the Clear Phone and um, that I'm just have uh, been looking into that seems to be an alternative phone that ensures um, that your privacy will be respected and your location, but there's a whole ecosystem behind it that people can actually own their own data. And if you want to, you have your own privacy, uh, you can have all of your contracts and insurance and banking and complete privacy. And then if you want to sell your own data to a company, you can, but you don't have to, and it's entirely secure. And it also has backup servers so that all of your data will be backed up and they are in secure locations. So this is like the alternative wonderful new world that will respect our inalienable rights of freedom of speech Dare I say, and bodily integrity and privacy.
0: Dare I say building back better. Would I would I be allowed to get away with that? So while, <laughs> so while Klaus Schwab is talking about building back back better which of course he, it isn't, he's talking about building a dystopian, draconian nightmare that nobody in their right minds would want to live in. People like you are looking ahead. Now it's fascinating you saying that to me because this week uh, former Dragons Den star Rachel Elnor was on the programme I've had other people on the program this week talking about creating an alternative world, almost accepting that they will in some way manage to get this crazy world they want to build or they'll get some version of it, but that we can coexist blissfully in our own more human, more natural, you know, kind of world that we can build. I've kind of butchered that, but I think you know what I mean.
5: Yes, I know what you mean. And that's not the vision I have at all. No, Uh, (laughs) no, what I would be saying is so I have been working and learning about the law for 20 years, but really intensively for 12 years. And what I would be saying is a nice, gentle message to the globalists, you know, including the bankers and the politicians and the people in the uh, regulatory and health and all these scientific committees. Uh, My message would be the game is up. So it's not that we are going to be living in pockets of our beautiful nations. It is that, um, and I've been actively engaged in building coalitions of people who are expert in the rule of law, law of the land, constitutional law, that actually what a lot of our um, elected representatives and the people who are dressed up as police and judges in our countries, including in Ireland, and we've been writing to the attorney general and the head of police here over the last weeks, uh, the game is up that they actually, what they are doing uh, is tantamount to treason. So, for example, in Ireland, for a law to be law, um, it has to be translated or has to be in English and Irish. It has the Irish version of the text and the English has to be signed by the president. And it has to be enrolled in the office of the Supreme Court. So we've been asking questions uh, about whether that is the case for the COVID-19 Act. And if, if the Act is not translated and properly constituted, then it's not law. And the Attorney General and the President and the Prime Ministers of Ireland need to look into it. And the Chief of Police here and the police, each individual person dressed up as a police officer, is um, paid and their pensions only if they act under their oath, which is to uphold the law and the Constitution. So if certain acts um, are not in Irish, and the government has come out about a month ago to say more than 500-plus of the acts Um, have not translated in Ireland and are essentially not properly law. And that kind of act of not coming out, if COVID-19, if that is the case, that is for all of the people engaged in the police and the judges and the president and the government, um, a situation that is tantamount to treason because the police are enforcing something that's not the law.
0: Now, I agree with every word of that. Obviously. And by the way, I prefer your outlook. I prefer that we take back control of our lives and go back to the way it used to be and and, and maybe, you know, make it better. I I agree with that. I'm not saying I want to live in a two, not a two-tier society, but I don't want to live where you've got two societies side by side. What I would say is that I'm kind of preparing for that. But I agree with every word there that you said about constitutional law. And I know you're a genius, but I wonder... I no, 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 listen, I'm I'm, 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 I, give I'm I give you a compliment. Because I give right, you a compliment because, because, you, because I'm, I'm, I'm then going to take you down a peg. Because I'm, I'm, I'm then okay, going I'm, so I'm well, to say, enough? are you not being naive in thinking that you can go to the courts of our country, which are corrupt and filthy and rife with, with, um, with, with scoundrels, and expect them to uphold the law? Why will they uphold the law?
5: Uh, so first of all, there are some very good people in the police and in the courts and in the, um, in the government. And as part of the World Freedom Alliance, um, we want to, you know, say that these many people uh, in the civil service, in the courts, police and the politicians are our brothers and sisters. And we want to uh, open our hearts to them and get them to walk away from any type of unlawful behavior um, and to join us. But I suppose we're not asking them, right? And the same what you said earlier on, uh, no one can take away your freedom, right? We have freedom of speech from the very second that we're born um, and we have freedom of bodily integrity and freedom of travel and we have inalienable rights. Okay, so no one, it's not that we have to, you know, bury ourselves away anywhere. No one can take away that and I think what, what COVID-19, you know, it's very sad what's going on in the care homes and the deaths with the mRNA injections, the masks. Um, but really what it is, is a great awakening. And people, especially in Ireland, will say for all of my life, so for the last 50 years, have been lied to and have been told untruths. But the truth resonates. And all we have to do is to tell people the truth and then get them to have the confidence to stand in the truth. And I would say it might take us 10 years, but I actually think within a year or two, if the people like us who have now the worldwide networks and the Irish networks, that we're not asking uh, the attorney general or the president or the Tawnister or the Taoiseach or the chief of police, we're not asking them, we are telling them, um, if you are not acting according to the law, then you will be charged, right? And so whether it is with, um, you know, I would say the regulators in Ireland, in one care home in Ireland, there was 51 residents and there was injections happened in the third week of January. There was no deaths in the five weeks before of those residents. And in the five weeks after the injection, 26 of the 51 residents of that one home in Ireland had died. Okay? So in a normal functioning society, that would be in the newspapers. Yeah. The police would be investigating it. The medical regulatory bodies and all of the doctors would be saying, we need to investigate these 26 deaths. And because the injections are in a clinical trial, for the regulators in Ireland, one death in a clinical trial worldwide would normally be enough uh, to stop
0: to suspend it. the clinical
5: trial. Yeah. So, so maybe just to say why we're not asking, right? is that it actually rests, you know, harm is done by one man and one woman to another man and woman under constitutional law and on the law of the land. So the people who did the physical injection of those, sadly, the people that died and then went on another week uh, to keep on injecting and the police where the care home were, that did not the individual police and the uh, coroners and the undertakers and the care home owners they all have a responsibility to not actually to go to the police and say there has been excessive deaths in the home and and you know there could be um contributory manslaughter because they would know that someone had come into the home that hadn 't been there previously, and so we 're not asking these people to kindly step aside the The kind of harm that has been done now um is a type of crime, contributory manslaughter, potentially, if not treason on behalf of the, um, you know, coroners can face five years in prison if they don't properly investigate death. Doctors can be struck off and also have more than five years in prison. Right. And, you know, in some of the people in that home had dementia and you are not allowed to enroll um, anyone that cannot give full and informed consent uh, to someone with dementia. So that is actually a crime. And we have the death certs associated with, sadly, those people who died. So, so the type of crimes and their severity, uh, there is no term limit. So even if it takes us 10 or 20 years to hold those individual people to account, um, we will. And so then, what we have to do is replace. So really, people who are involved in causing huge harm, huge, you know, adverse events and death, and those turning a blind eye, and those in the media not properly reporting it that we cannot have a functioning society and those people will have to be replaced. You know, there is huge harm going on. It is a burden to people like me because I came out in May 2020 and said exactly what would happen. And unfortunately, with the mRNA injections in May 2020, I said that the harm will happen from the injection. But those people that are injected will have a reduction in their life expectancy, if not immediately after the injection, but in the years to come, maybe two to five years to come. And so we're not asking, we're not hiding to say we will have a pocket Uh, that globalists in each country, you know, the World Health Organization has been managed through individual regulators or the European Medicines Agency, and all those people will be held to account and collectively its crimes against humanity. And there are at least six investigations of crimes against humanity in the world. And I'm we are all in contact with each other and exchanging information. So and of course, you know, the type of people that are going along with contributory manslaughter and huge harm, whether they're doctors or regulators, essentially they are not doing the duty of care. They should have known, you know, there's crimes of malfeasance and there's also they have indemnity insurance. So those doctors that are continuing to inject and enroll people with dementia into clinical trials or are continuing to inject people as GPs in their practice every day without telling people this is a clinical trial and giving them adverse events, they can be written to by the family or the people who have adverse events and their indemnity insurance and their family home and their pension. And you don't have to go to the courts. It's a simple process of putting the GP on notice and informing this insurance company, I was not informed this was a clinical trial. I was not informed of the full adverse events. The person injecting, whether it's the GP or the nurse practitioner or the member of the HSE, they are personally responsible in their private capacity for harm done if they don't give full informed consent.
0: And you're, um, when we spoke last, you were very keen to to speak to people who may have sadly had to deal with the deaths of somebody who who had been vaccinated recently, or, or if not recently, a few weeks ago or a month or so ago, you were very keen to say that they should move heaven and earth to have an autopsy done, right? Yes. If they can. But that's not if that can. easy. Yeah. That's a, that, so, I mean,
5: we have done that with a very brave family. Um, and, you know, for 12 days in the world, including a press conference in Copenhagen we could not get one pathologist in the world we did find a very brave pathologist who I admire and respect Um, and then the autopsy report has been done but sadly the samples after the autopsy were going to be sent to four uh, countries um, but the samples were not correctly sent in all cases and the samples could not be correctly analyzed so, what's needed, um but i've been haven't got around to doing it is to set up with, you know people where they would like on the clear phone you could do it where people's um health data and every interaction with the health professional would be recorded on the phone and could be given to six or ten family members in real time and including any informed consent or any enrollment in the clinical trial. And then if someone went into hospital um, and was you know given a diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 the treatment could be monitored in real time and if that was not at the top class of the prevention and treatment like hydroxychloroquine and zinc or ivermectin or vitamin d if there was an autopsy the autopsy could be prepaid but the family members would know the registration number and the uh, employment number of everybody that interacted with them, uh, because they can be held individually to account for any kind of, um, you know, not giving appropriate treatment. But also, for example, we've had many cases where people have been treated for terminal cancer and then only COVID-19 is on the dead cert. Yeah. So they would have a record of whether, because that's malpractice, you know, that's medical Malpractice because. Dolores, some interesting things. Cancer.
0: Sorry to interrupt you. Some interesting things are going on, which are very positive for your good self, particularly. You have this gentleman O'Connor in Mayo, uh, the the, um, the the pathologist in in Mayo, the 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 coroner yeah. in Mayo. And he's come out very strongly criticising that, you know, too many people are being written off as having died of coronavirus. That's, you know, I think that's exceptional. You have the Office for National Statistics in this country saying that at least a quarter of the deaths in the UK probably not COVID, they shouldn't you know, be assigned to COVID. University College London, on the other hand is saying that herd immunity was reached weeks ago. There's no need for any of these measures or any of these restrictions. And I have to ask you this before you come back in. How fascinating that Trinity College's Luke O'Neill who's been deified by the Irish media. I think he's a bit of a clown, even though I've, I've never met him personally. This guy went on Brendan O'Connor's programme on RTE over the weekend. And, I heard. and boldly, or boldly, or boldly, said, um, neither mine nor my colleagues have had a vaccine, and we don't intend on having one. I think things are looking up for you there, do you know that? I think this dam is about to break right soon, I think.
5: Yes, I think you may be right. But of course, the thing is that zero people needed to die in the world, right? So that's yes. what it's not just what's coming out now, sadly, a year later, um, is that it would be like, you know, if you had uh, pneumonia or some illness where um, antibiotics would be the absolute treatment and no one need die if the antibiotics were given early. So that's something that people will actually resonate. So say if you had sepsis or if you had, you know, some cuss that went septic and you went to your GP and they said, go home and isolate yourself and only come back when the sepsis is so bad in two weeks time that you're in uh, organ failure and we have to put you on uh, some kind of, uh, you know, dialysis or put put you in intensive care, right? So that's exactly the analogy that I would use for what's going on with this SARS-CoV-2. But if people were told vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, right, last year, and there are more than 20 regulated and approved drugs, including hydroxychloroquine and zinc and ivermectin, last year when this SARS-CoV-2 really was circulating, December 2019 to April 2020, not one person need have died, right? And that was well-known with Michael Levitt's work in January and hydroxychloroquine had passed clinical trials, right? It's been approved for 65 years, can be given to breastfeeding and pregnant women for 65 years, World Health Organization, essential medicine in the world. And it's a life-saving treatment if given in the proper dose early. So therefore, there was zero need for the lockdown ever. And on the um, 19th of March, 2020, people can look it up. On the government website, they said SARS-CoV-2 was not a highly infectious disease.
0: Yeah, that's right. So
5: therefore, there was no reason for not doing autopsies. And I would say, you know, fair play to any coroners coming out. But I do know that people from the constitutional law perspective, rule of law, are writing to the Central Statistics Office and individual members of government to ensure that the statistics, you know, the CSO statistics are actually can be used in law courts. And I would be saying that every death that is COVID-19 is a preventable death, and that all the families there, you know, can go to the doctors and ask if they give prevention and treatment. And the coroners, because it's not a highly infectious disease on the UK website, under the Coroner's Act, it's five years in prison for the coroners to not do autopsies. And the coroners should be challenging the government, as I was trying to do. Um, to say, no, no, we have to do autopsies, right? So I would say the coroners and all the people coming out now are, I I welcome it, but actually all the coroners and all the the state pathologists um, should be checking because every COVID-19 death essentially should be reported to the police for contributory manslaughter if the GP and the doctors did not give world leading prevention and treatment because every single one of those deaths were preventable.
0: So you're saying that there is no excuse for a doctor, whether that be an emergency room doctor or a GP. You're saying there is no excuse. They must know that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are effective, safe, um, very good treatments for people with this respiratory infection. And by not prescribing it, they're basically in violation of their... Uh, of their ethics of their ethical responsibilities. so
5: the, so exactly so the so the person would not die okay so yeah. the, that me okay the person would not die the zelenko protocol was developed in february 2020 but the hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine there were um clinical trials in 2003 and 2005 for the first sars and um, but it's also been known to to allow the immune system uh to really pre- prevent huge severity of death uh, and severe illness for uh, viruses including coronavirus so um and also vitamin d has been shown to be effective so what i was saying you know it's true that if you actually have the proper vitamin d and zinc and vitamin c no matter whether you are in your 80s or 90s or whatever you can actually boost your own health and so people don't need to be worried and there was no need for the lockdown So what we then need to move on is to hold people accountable um, for not allowing the information. And people may remember in Rwanda, it was actually in the Crimes Against Humanity um, tribunals. It was the media there and the radio stations and the individual people who were announcing it. So it would be the equivalent of the people on the nine o'clock news or on the radio shows here every day, that they were actually contributing to Crimes Against Humanity because they uh, by what they were doing or by their omission were actually contributing to information, not getting out or to, you know, al- allowing and fear is actually seen be a contributory factor yeah. that can cause death. So these are, you know, in Ireland, you would only be talking about maybe 10 people. So I am involved in multiple countries now intensely in the Crimes Against Humanity tribunals, you know, which some of them will be the Hague, but we will set up our own one. And Rainer Fulnick is having a Nuremberg 2 so, I mean, I'm very honored to be in touch with all of the top uh, criminal, you know, human rights and crimes against humanity. So like in Ireland, there's only maybe 10 media people and it doesn't matter whether they retire now that the truth will come out that if, you know, those 26 people that died in one care home, because it's a huge burden to me, because can you imagine on one Saturday, we'll say in one month in January, you had 51 of your friends there and that's their home. And then within a short month, like 19 of them died in two weeks. Can you imagine if you were 85 and uh, there are 19 coffins and 19 funerals? And then that no one is actually saying what's going on. um, And they must be wondering, you know, are someone someone else going to come in and just inject us all with something? And the rest of us are going to not be here in a month's time. See, I've never thought of that. that. Yeah.
0: I've never thought of that. Uh, God forgive me. That's not occurred to me. That's not occurred to me. That has given me a shiver down my spine now, the likes of which I've never had or or not had for a long time. Wow. Well,
5: that's a huge burden to me. Yeah.
0: You're there and you're a senior citizen and you're in this home and you see your friends dying around you and you suspect it might be that vaccine. Jesus, that didn't occur to me until you said it there. That's a terrible thing.
5: I think it's a terrible thing and I think, you know, we will have to ask for forgiveness really because those people are grandparents and great-grandparents and there's absolutely no need for them to be prisoners in care homes and to be isolated from their family and their grandchildren because, you know, in Ireland we have a great vibrancy of tradition and passing on and really it is the grandmothers and grandfathers that actually, you know, like I loved my grandmothers and, uh, and I never knew my grandfathers, but that was really, you know, the children and all the families in Ireland, their hearts are broken really because the grandparents and whether they are the, the grand aunts, grand or the people that are in those homes, that it is so cruel, right? That someone like me knows that there is like the World, world Health Organization, safest drugs in the world, Uh, Nobel Prize winning, vitamin D and zinc and vitamin C on their own would ensure that none of this is necessary. So the multi-generational harm uh, that has been caused, because you know, if one radio announcer that's on was actually to come out and tell people there is no need for the elderly to be locked in and allow Nobel Prize winners or whatever, top people in the world or someone like me, I'm not saying I'm not a Nobel Prize winner, but you know that to actually discuss and say, because what I have offered all the time is that I would take responsibility, right? So what you would have to do is just test the elderly for their vitamin D, allow them to get sunshine and fresh air um, and make the you know hydroxychloroquine and zinc and ivermectin available if they get flu-like symptoms, and then allow them to actually go home or to allow the families to come in And for them to go out and have a cup of coffee or go to the opera or to go to whatever, you know, to the communities, and to take the masks off of children, because the masks are causing huge psychological harm. And, you know, what I've been questioning as well, there is maybe last year, I think around 230 people who had no underlying symptoms, but were just COVID-19. But what I'm wondering is where a lot of those people, did they die um, by suicide, you know? And I think we really need to look into that because there's a huge um, unspoken harm because of the masks and because of the isolation and the lockdown. And as we'll come on to, I'm sure, in other uh, conversations, you know, small businesses have been decimated and, and people are going to lose their jobs. But is it maybe that the so the people who had no underlying conditions, and that would be shocking if that's what the central statistics office and the coroners and the doctors are doing, because. People are dying by suicide because of the isolation and the psychological harm of the masks and, you know, teenagers and young people been isolated for no reason. Um, and if any one of those deaths are misattributed to COVID-19 to try and provide, um, you know, data to keep the hype and the fear going on, um, that the people and the coroners and the doctors who are the central statistics office who have not checked that out and method. And the virus reference labs, we will have to investigate that. Can I just say, can
0: I just, I I do, I do, and I'm as interested in those numbers because I I don't want to say statistics, people are not statistics. I would be equally as interested as you. I I can't not mention, though, according to the BBC, you can laugh if you like, but I'll read it out anyway. The BBC claimed today, um, through the University of Manchester, that the number of suicides in England did not rise following the first national lockdown of 2020. And it says, does the University of Manchester, the findings are in line with research from other high-income countries. Now, I'm not saying I believe that. I'm not. I'm saying they're claiming that suicide wasn't an issue after the first lockdown.
5: And so that's what I'm saying is that I know, because some families now, I don't want to overemphasize it, and yeah. we were involved in writing to the coroners, and some of the death certs were changed, right? So, but what what I have heard is, but we can investigate it because, you know, if we live long enough in the next uh, 10 years or so, um, that the families themselves who, who, they know that their loved one uh, died by suicide and had COVID-19, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, because the thing is that if you were going to switch from by not putting something correctly down on the death cert, then the numbers could look like um you know they're essentially switching from one cause of death to another. But of course, what I've been saying all along is that that is one false death cert is misrepresentation, uh, and and a doctor, a GP, and everyone involved in that can be struck off, and the family can sue for their indemnity insurance and the coroner's. Uh, for not investigating that properly. It's up to five years in prison for the coroner under the Coroner's Act in Ireland, 2005, and it's similar all over the world. So even just one case like that, um, we will need to investigate it. So therefore, you see, we've all, there's been a lot of undermining of proper rigor in medicine and science, and a lot of people have gone along with it, right? Whether it's the pathologists, the doctors, the coroners, the GPs, right? you see we need a functioning society where individual men and women are responsible for their action they cannot say if people remember Nuremberg but also under the law that they were acting uh you know under orders and one man or woman does harm to one man or woman and a misappropriation of a cause of death is harm because it's it's harm to the person who has died and their families But also it's false information, which adds to false information from uh, the review of what's going on. So so maybe just to say there was a report in 2020 in Switzerland, and they was doing it in real time. And they actually said the harm of the lockdown was that for every month of the lockdown, everyone alive uh, in Switzerland would have one month of year less of life. So in Ireland, we've had a year of some of the most severe lockdowns. So it means that there are 5 million years of life lost, 5 million people in Ireland. But the Swiss study, they said that's not distributed evenly, that about 1 in 50 people will lose over a decade of life. And that is because up to 1 in 50 people will die by suicide. So that is the real statistics that is seen to be echoing in all countries in the world. So we have to Put on our critical analysis hats and ask questions. And just because we see that some study is done, it does not mean that it's true. And a lot of the studies have been misrepresented. Or if you look into the funding or the conflicts of interest behind some studies, they can be so significant, and the media are not talking about conflict of interest.
0: No, we, we they're not. It's funny, though, things are starting to break through the media. Simon Clark, who's a microbiology professor at the University of Reading, got on to BBC Radio Scotland this morning and dismissed face masks, just dismissed them out of hand, said that they're not effective, they don't do anything, and that uh, there's no credible science to support the wearing of them. Little things are going on. What what I wanted to ask you, Dolores, was, folks, I, I, I've not had a chance to remind you, not that you need to be reminded, but the eminent scientist, Professor Dolores Cahill, is on the programme this evening, uh, I'm glad that she is WorldFreedomAlliance.org and DoloresCahill.com dot com. Check out the websites there. And yes. I'm
5: also president of World Doctors Alliance as well. Oh, we World Doctor! I never mentioned that, do I? Medical I'm, professionals as well. I'm yeah.
0: a proper Egypt World Doctors Alliance as well. Uh, check dot com. Dot com. Yeah.
5: And yeah. I'm president of both organizations. I'm very honoured to be. Yeah.
0: President of both. Now I, I wanted to um to, to come on to to, to this. It's 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 apparent to me that the plan and by, by the plan I mean our government's plans and the advisers advising them. So we mentioned earlier on Luke O'Neill and these people, I, I'm not, not sure he's so much of a government advisor, but over here of course it's Whitty and Valance and this Irish woman that drives me crazy, Susan Hopkins, and and others. It's obvious to me that they do not have any intention whatsoever of ending this cycle of lockdowns. They have no intention of it. Um, They're going to use the threat of mutant variants, double mutant variants, to push for lockdowns late in the summer this year, as they did last year. They have already stated categorically that distancing and mask wearing should carry on. I feel the fatigue in my neighbourhood and in, in, in my area. How do you think it'll pan out, Dolores? Do you think... When they inevitably come back later in the year to say, "Oh dear, deadly variants, we've got to go through it all again," at that point, do you think people might reach boiling point, and more and more people are going to turn towards people like you, the World Doctors dot com, World Freedom dot org. Will people at that stage have reached COVID saturation and say, "Enough is e bloody enough"? What do you think? <laughs>
5: Um, Well, I hope so. Uh, I hope so. And we are doing, I suppose, you know, it is a a burden on me, especially the masks on teenagers, the isolation of teenagers, uh, the elderly, whether they're at home in the care homes, and also that there will be um, an undermining of small business and farmers, you know, an innovation in order to pay money into our country so that um, we will have the money for education and health and to give proper treatment for cardiovascular disease and cancer, which are causing you know, much more, which are real diseases that yeah. we need to actually really talk about, right? So I suppose the take-home message is the lockdown was never necessary and that um, what we need to do on our side as well is to learn how to be kinder to people who actually I think are maybe more kind than us or more, um, you know, uh, that they actually believe that if the prime ministers and the media and the health professionals and the science advisory boards and NEPHIT and whatever, the other organisations around the world, the equivalent, that if they say it it must be true, right, where someone like me is going, well, let's have a look here. What's the evidence? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So we need to, and the way to actually engage with people, first of all, I would say to people in a nice way is just bring your friends or family members. Uh, You may not, don't discuss COVID-19 because essentially Sadly, if people know what is going on in Agenda 21, uh, which I was aware since 1997 and really read into it since 2002, is an undermining of the structure of our society from small businesses locally to this globalist agenda where people are not trying, you know, they think they're trying to be not accountable and you have organizations in the world making decisions that all of the countries essentially implement in lockstep. Okay, so this is the real, um, you know, COVID-19, even though there's huge harm, is a distraction from the economic and societal undermining, the undermining of the rule of law and the decimation of local farming, clean water, nutritious food, people being able to access markets, local food in season. Um, and also the undermining of our trust in the police the courts and in the system of election and democracy okay that's what's really going on this is the eighth pandemic in 20 years that i have uh, also been tracking slow you know over the last 20 years and what they are using unlawfully is health so-called health pandemics to undermine the rule of law and accountability now what i'm saying the good news is the game is up The game is absolutely up. We can actually, we only need to hold like five people to account in each country. And in the World Freedom Alliance, I'm very honored we're launching a European spring. And the appeal is called Hope and Accountability. And separately in a related project, we're working uh, with the Children's Health Defense and many other organizations across the world, but mainly in Europe, to send notices of liability to post them to each member of the European Parliament uh, that if they if they vote for these vaccine passports, right, to coerce people to exercise their inalienable rights of freedom of travel to get a medical intervention, which is well known now to be causing more harm than good, that it might be news and how this will wake, I think, everybody up and help to wake them up is that in Ireland there were for example, 13 members of the European Parliament, um, and seven of them voted for this injection. I think all of them in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. But under the notice of liability, that individual people in Ireland and across Europe can actually, uh, you know, write notices of liability to them and affidavits under a bill of waiver. You don't even need to go to the court. And those individual members of the European Parliament if they vote for these vaccine passports can be held accountable in their private and personal capacity including for all of their assets and future assets and pensions and their house and their income if by their vote people who take the injection in the months and years to come uh, have adverse events because they were coerced uh, into having the injection uh, in order to travel for we'll say vital family matters so you know, I know that's a long-winded way of answering your question. No, no, it's good. But I think that um, that people will actually, if that vote does not go through, because I would say to the European Members of Parliament, you know, either resign or vote against that. Or, you know, that people can actually, uh, you know, even if you wanted to get the injection or whatever, uh, you know, that the... the if The the, the way they vote, their individual actions on the 9th of June may result in huge harm and multi-generational harm. And if they live for another, you know, whatever, till they're 110, they will be accountable for their actions. And it's those kind of initiatives that people, when ordinary people realize, because if it goes ahead and ordinary people, for example, pregnant women uh, you know, where miscarriages result or there's huge harm. When they find out that individual members of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gale were responsible for causing that harm, when it's been well known for more than a year that there's huge issues with those uh, mRNA injections, that it's that kind of initiative. So what we're trying to do, everything we're doing is to prevent the harm. But we're also, in our notes of liabilities, informing them about crimes against humanity that they individually, so the seven members of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, for example, in Ireland, and we will be calling as well, we have pillars for political parties or independents, that people who are vaccine injured or their loved ones should be standing for election in two years' time against you know, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. To, uh, and they can play back this recording in the event the vaccine passport is uh, voted for because of them in ireland um to vote against them that they should be you know feel shame that they voted for something that would cause huge harm and it's well known
0: it's the ultimate in tyranny really i'm not i'm i, I think it probably will get through here in the uk but there's a possibility it won't if the labour party and the liberal democrats decide to vote against it there are enough conservative party backbenchers who have indicated their disdain for it, that it might just uh, die a death here, but I won't um, hold my breath. We're just about to run out of time. We've got about two minutes left, Dolores. Uh, Thanks, you know, for coming back on and and updating us on what you've been doing. An absolute
5: pleasure, Richie. Of course, I admire your work.
0: Ah, You're very kind. It's still... Final word to you then, I suppose. Glass is still... I I know I've said this before. For you, glass is still very much half full, despite the terrible things that have happened in the last 12 months. You're optimistic that there's a clear way through this if people hold their nerve.
5: Oh yeah, I'm hugely optimistic. Now it is a huge burden to me, the masks on the children and teenagers and the the elderly, the isolation, you know, and the economic and banking devastation that is planned under this agenda, which of course we will prevent. But I think what we will have to do, you know, I think these two years in a hundred or a thousand years' time, uh, the 2020-2021 is actually a key uncovering of the lies that has been going on, and the misrepresentation and the undermining of the beautiful societies in a way that are possible um, in the last 100 years, or maybe since 1611. You know, there are key dates, and I think, you know, in a hundred years' time. The, the exposure of the corruption and undermining, whether it's in the banking, uh, in the rule of law and political, you know, pol- political systems and health and education, it's all been uncovered now. And in Germany, it looks like half the population are completely aware. And I would say in Ireland, probably maybe one in five. And um, but we're not going away, and we're not going to take the vaccine. So we uh, will be here and we're already building it up and building accountability structures. And just to lastly say, I'm very honored to be leading the PCR consortium of the world um, with Jack Lloyd-Viler and Professor Shin Lee. And we will be uh, sequencing positive, up to a thousand positive, and 500 positive, 500 negative tests. And if the result of that is not SARS-CoV-2, if it's human DNA or some other causative agent, then that will be directly used for court cases to stop the lockdown. Um, because if it's not SARS-CoV-2 in a positive PCR test, then there's no lawful basis. And that's initially, that's under hashtag testgate. We're trying to raise money for it, um, but that will ensure that even if it takes us maybe a year to do, that the next time they call a the pandemic, that we will have this sequencing, full length DNA sequencing infrastructure there to say to the World Health Organization, okay, Send us, you know, a thousand of the positives for the next so-called pandemic, and we will try and validate it. And if it's not true what they're doing, we will end it quicker. So this tyranny is not going to go on for four or five years. It might go on for another six months or so, but eventually the people will be held to account.
0: Brilliant, Dolores. Thanks for your time today. I know you'll stay in touch and you'll come back on when there's any news. great to have you on I really appreciate it alright
5: thank you so much for the opportunity and also um, hello to all your listeners and I'm very grateful to everyone for all their kind messages and everything and I appreciate it very much you're Take very care, welcome Richie. you
0: too Dolores. Professor Dolores Cahill there live on the line uh, she's in Ireland this afternoon I believe in in. She might be in Dublin uh, this evening thanks uh, to her for coming back on the programme I'll give you those websites again worlddoctorsalliance.com worldfreedomalliance.org or just go to com. that's about it for today's programme flew by for me it did anyway I want to thank Debbie Hayton for coming on earlier on uh, fascinating stuff that about that case in Canada a guy sent to prison for six months for contempt of court because he referred to his daughter by the pronoun she and her and tried to stop her getting puberty blockers that's about the size of it by the way no embellishment there terrible that what a precedent that is thanks to Debbie Uh, you'll find Debbie on Twitter I've given you the details already at Debbie Hayton do find her there Uh, she's a transgender person a teacher and talks a lot about these issues about how trans people can live in peace and be looked after without impinging on the rights of anybody else she's very good is Debbie Hayton and you just heard Professor Dolores Cal. I'm going to take my leave of you because it's the end of the programme thank you for listening and we'll do it all again tomorrow at 5 o'clock for Thursday's programme it's been a quick old week so it has leaving you with Rod Stewart Rod Stewart yeah so have a good old uh, Wednesday then bye see you tomorrow bye now